1: Ever wanted to hear a literal pirate discuss ways to reuse ocean plastic with a Fortune 500 CEO? What about a White House policy advisor debating an Academy Award winning film director about regenerative agriculture? Want to learn about the future of manufacturing from a legendary big wave surfing icon? Sounds pretty cool, right? Right. Uh, then you need to attend the Sea Change sessions this September 13th through 15th. Um, this also sounds a hell of a lot like Twitter. So, you know, maybe it'll be like Twitter in real life. Sea Change is an absolutely unique event that gathers some of the world's most adventurous leaders to inspire global progress in areas like climate action, sustainable business, diversity, equity, and inclusion, future materials personal wellness, and more. Equal parts conference, festival, and laboratory. See Change features powerful talks, collaborative problem-solving workshops, and more meaningful moments built to connect you with a global community of leaders. No matter where you are, you can participate and inspire change. Attend online from around the globe or in person in Burlington, Vermont. Basic online registration is free, or pick the past that works best for you. The next Sea Change event is the Summer Summit coming up September 13th through 15th. Join this global crew of leaders by registering now at SeaChangesessions.com. That's S E E Changesessions.com.
0: I know that climate change can often feel like a far-off problem. And if you're thinking to yourself, how does it impact my life? Then I have the podcast for you. The Carbon Copy covers climate change in a unique way by connecting it to the major cultural, economic, business, and tech trends that shape the world around us. Climate change is often siloed as a scientific story, But listeners of this show know that everything is a climate story. Hosted by veteran climate reporter Stephen Lacey, the carbon copy informs, enlightens, and sparks curiosity on the many ways a changing climate will impact our lives. From Russia's war on Ukraine to the housing crisis and decisions handed down from the Supreme Court, explore how climate change and the energy transition connect to the biggest stories of the day listen, and follow The Carbon Copy wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, hotcakes. Welcome to Hot
0: Take. I'm Marianne Ease Hegler. And I'm Amy Westervelt. And we're working on Labor Day. I'm just kidding. We, we are working on Labor Day, <laughs> but it's a labor of love. It's true. It was our choice. Yeah. It was our choice. Um, so, yeah, today we're bringing folks a, an update on all of the various bits of climate news, both in the U.S. and outside of it. And we're also going to take a look at what's happening with labor unions and the climate movement because it is Labor Day after all and then Mary is gonna walk us through the ongoing water crisis in Jackson so that's all coming up today no pressure no pressure <laughs> Mary that's all you no just uh, 20 years okay. plus of water infrastructure policy go I'm just kidding. <laughs>
1: Uh, It's definitely more than 20 years. It's definitely more than 20 years, but we'll talk about all of that. But before we get to that, um, I have a a question for you, Amy. Okay. What? How many carbons does it take to make a dioxide? Mm. One? None. Yeah, I don't know. I literally don't know the answer to that. And the reason I'm asking you is to promote our upcoming episode Ask a Scientist. <laughs> we will have an actual climate scientist on the show. Um so if you have questions about climate science, you know, we talk all the time here about how you don't need to understand the science to understand climate change. And you don't, but it's kind of fun. Yeah. So if you have questions about climate science that you've been dying to ask, never wanted to ask in public, we don't have to say your real name. We can give you fake names. Also, please don't be ashamed. Um, but send those questions to take at com.
0: That's right. And and our guest for that is Dr. Kate Marvel, who is a, a freaking genius, like the smartest person I think I've ever talked to, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, we know a lot yep. of smart people, but she's up there. She's hilarious and, and yeah. funny and can talk about not just the science itself, but also things around science communication, science policy, anything in that world. Uh, ask away. We're excited for that episode. It'll be fun. Yeah,
1: she is. Um, one of her biggest skill sets is that she is very good at explaining science to people who have been told their entire lives that they are bad at math or science. Yes. Um, so if that applies to you like it does to me, this is the perfect time to get those questions answered.
0: My favorite Kate Marvel quote is uh, that Earth is the only good planet. It's a very a short and simple way to answer mm-hmm. the question like. Could we survive on Mars? Is like, should we be looking for other planets? <laughs> um, yeah. yeah.
1: Also, fun thing about Kate is she loves questions about Elon Musk and space travel. So please send those.
0: <laughs> also horoscopes.
1: <laughs> yes. Oh, don't worry. I've got all the astrology questions covered. Um, but you'll <gasps> understand why that's funny once we actually have her on the show. Yes. So, again, send your questions to hottake at crooked.com. Um, and
0: with that, I think it's time. It's time to talk about climate.
1: Let's get after it. Let's get after it. <laughs> 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 Oh, man. Maybe said that to me earlier and I had to tell her that that's what people in gyms say.
0: <laughs> I wouldn't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, okay, so we talked a lot about colonialism and climate last time and especially in the context of what was happening in Pakistan this past week, which is continuing to happen. There are now... Yeah, 30 million people displaced internally in Pakistan, which is absolutely yeah. mind blowing. I, I saw, I kept seeing people try mm-hmm. to put it in context. It's like, you know, the population of like all these states put together, or like the population of, you know, most of Western Europe put together, or whatever. I just don't think it's possible to wrap your head around that many people um, being. But that is exactly the scale of the problem that we're dealing with here and why um, we're going to keep talking about climate reparations, because I don't see any other solution that is like equal to the scale of the problem.
1: Right. The other thing I'm thinking about is the immigration crisis. You know, the mm-hmm. refugee crisis from this. Yeah. Um, and what happened the last time that there was a large wave of, you know, of refugees from a largely Muslim part of the world, and how Europe reacted, and like all of those sorts of things, and and the ways that they're greeted um, in the global north. So I'm, yeah, that's something to be really concerned about. Um, so. We will have, again, the, fun, the links to fundraisers that we trust in our show notes. And if you're able to help people, please do. And thank you to everyone who already has sent money. Um, I'm sure that, that people appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, meanwhile, in China, this record-breaking heat wave— has lasted for more than two months. This also blows my mind. And this is the thing I think, you know, folks might be surprised to see some of these really extreme impacts coming kind of fast and furious and just one right after the other and out like what seems like all of a sudden, right? And that is because the progress of climate change is not linear. So it's not like, oh, we warm a little bit and this happens and then we warm a little bit more and this happens. It's like, we warm a little bit and a little bit more and a little bit more yeah. and things stay kind of stable and then shit fucking pops off. Um, <laughs> and and that right. is like what we're seeing right now. So, so yeah, China has had this heat wave for two yeah. months. That is of course exacerbating drought in China. Uh, we now have a big heat wave on the West coast of the U S which weirdly was like the one region that hadn't had a heat wave yet this summer, but now it's happening. Um, Of course, Europe had a heat wave. Wait, the West
1: Coast hadn't had a heat
0: wave? This summer, no, not like a big one. I mean, we always get hot in the summer, but, you know, it was like all these other places in the country were like record high numbers and the West Coast was hot, but not like, you know, everyone was predicting that like Mm, the Portland heat dome would come back and it like kind of did, but it wasn't as bad as last time, you know. Um, But now, yeah, we're, we're on day three or four, I think now of triple-digit numbers throughout most of the West. Um, You know, this is, like, the peak of fire season, too, so that's very scary. Um, There was one fire that kicked off in California, kind of near where the Paradise Fire was, in a town, I'm not kidding, Mm. called Weed. Weed, California. Amy. I know. It's not my fault. That's the name of the town. Look...
1: (laughs) Look, Amy, I know that you're trying to make a name for yourself as a punster, but <laughs> making up the names of towns <laughs> of the fire is just, wow.
0: It's true. It's true. Wow. It, it, like, it actually, like, this. the fire there was wild because it kicked off um, and just whipped up really, really, really quickly. So it, it ended up burning over 100 homes and, and businesses in a oh. very short amount of time. Um, they did get it under control fairly quickly because the winds died down, but that's the big, the big fear this time of year is like, you have this drought that's ongoing, then you layer a heat wave on top of it, and then you get these winds that just like whip things up. Um, so everyone is definitely, you know, bracing for, um, Something bad this week. Fire nados. West. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and then at the like. Amid are folks
1: looking out for fire nados?
0: They are looking out for fire NATOs But also this this past week, there was a report that came out predicting a mega flood in California, the likes of which we've never seen. So like five times the damage of Katrina. Um, like. Uh, Just unbelievable, which is terrifying. So on top of, you know, the big earthquake that's predicted to hit at some point um, and the heat and the fires and the drought. Now, apparently there is a um, an epic mega flood headed for California. So not looking
1: good. Would that be related to is that related to the um, the earthquake or the flood or the fires rather?
0: It's related more to the to the drought and the heat actually, so it's like and to these sort of erratic weather patterns that we're seeing so the the problem is that like you'd have no rain for a long stretch of time and then too much rain on soil that is um, so dried out that it can't absorb the water quickly enough, which is where you mm-hmm. where you get these big mega floods so um. That, yeah that's not great not not excited about that nope um it has the potential to how are you feeling about your decision yeah I feel okay about leaving oh, California right now although I mean I still have like the rest of my family is there and um, you know it's yeah it's a large state with lots of people um, they are actually making some some big moves to do something about climate in California which we're going to talk about. In a minute, but um, yeah, you know, unfortunately, it's it's probably not enough to stave off some of the impacts that the state itself will be dealing with in the next few decades. So yeah, yeah, yeah. How about hurricane season? How's that going?
1: How about it? Um, I have a wooden table in my closet where I record mm-hmm. and I knock on it all the, every single time we talk about hurricane season. <laughs> so, um, so far, nothing I mean, as of September 5th, 2022, um, nothing super scary mm-hmm. to report. Mm-hmm. Um, they We have the first two named storms of, of the high holy days of hurricane season, mm-hmm. Danielle and Earl. Danielle, uh, last I checked, had just She was a hurricane, then she went to Tropical Storm, then she went back to Hurricane. Mm -hmm. Um, But she's not expected to touch grass, as they say. So she's not expected to affect any land masses. Mm. Um, Hurricane Earl will probably pass over some land masses, but it's pretty minor. Mm -hmm. Um, It's supposed to be going over Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. So everybody cross your fingers, say a prayer, do whatever you do, because we could really use a break. We could use a, m- a more mild hurricane season, especially here on the Gulf Coast. Um, but at the same time, there is typhoon. There is a major typhoon moving over South Korea and Japan. That's the equivalent of a Category Three uh, hurricane strength. So um, the Atlantic might be quiet, but the Pacific is uh, not.
0: Yeah. <laughs> to put it mildly. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Wow.
1: Yeah. Let so, me just knock on this wood real quick. Yeah, do
0: it. <laughs> this is, you know, this I is did. why we need um we need action quickly because none of this stuff is gonna, yeah. gonna go away anytime soon. Um and it's especially not gonna go away if nothing is, is being done to to prevent it from getting worse. So anyway, speaking of which Let's uh let's talk about what's happening with federal climate policy, shall we? After the break.
1: Hot take is brought to you by BetterHelp. When you're faced with challenges in life, it can be tough to train your brain to stay in problem-solving mode. But when you learn how to find your own solutions, there's no better feeling. Um, I know that I've definitely been, you know, stuck in a place where I'm just circling and circling around a problem. And then, you know, talking it through with my therapist helps me, like, find a solution. Or honestly, more often than not, quit obsessing over the little shit.
0: That's right. You know? That's right. I have to say that um, I will share a funny tidbit from an interaction I had with my better help therapist recently, which is that he sent me this book and, like— the beginning of it is, like, all about, you know, self-help and self-development. And my immediate reaction was, I don't need to work on me. I just need to work on, like, processing all the terrible things other people have done to me, <laughs> which is, is why I know I need more therapy.
1: <laughs> yeah, because yeah, those two things are the same thing, Amy. I came to therapy to plot revenge. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, But a a therapist can help you become a better problem solver, making it easier to accomplish your goals, no matter how big or small. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, it's accessible, it's affordable, and it's entirely online. So get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey and switch therapists anytime. So you don't like her, you ain't got to talk to her again, or him or them or whatever. Um, when you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com hottake Hot Take today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com hottake
0: Hot Take. Hot Take is brought to you by Magic Spoon. Magic Spoon makes cereal that you don't have to feel guilty to snack on. I I have kids, and I don't buy them, like, the worst sugary cereals, but I buy them, like, the, like, organic versions of the worst Mm. (laughs) sugary cereals. And Mm -hmm. they're—they probably have just as much sugar, and they're very tasty, and they're a very tempting snack when I'm, like, you know— working and it's late afternoon i don't have time for you know a healthy snack or to make something Um, so it's very very handy for me to have magic spoon on hand instead it's got all of the sweet crunchy texture but none of the bad stuff it's packed with protein it has zero grams of sugar 13 to 14 grams of protein only four to five net grams of carbs in each serving. So it's low carb, it's also keto-friendly, gluten-free, green free soy-free, and only 140 calories per serving. You can build your own box with a huge variety of appealing flavors. They've got the classics, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter, the cult faves, blueberry muffin, maple waffle, honey nut, And the indulgent picks, cookies and cream, and cinnamon roll. Go to magicspoon.com to grab a custom bundle of cereal and try the magic for yourself. And be sure to use our promo code HT at checkout to save $5 off of your order. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash H-T and use the code H-T to save $5 off. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. Okay, so Mary, remember when we were talking about the uh, Inflation Reduction Act a few weeks ago and there was... (laughs) All of this, wasn't it a few weeks ago or was it a year? I don't know. Um, did we ever stop? Did we ever stop? Who knows? <laughs> um, but, you know, the big thing that kept coming up over and over again was this this side permitting deal that Manchin had asked for in order to agree to the IRA. Um, and that is the place where a lot of the really— bad stuff was coming up that people were quite worried about. So um, one of those was, you know, kind of an automatic pass for the Mountain Valley Pipeline. Another was streamlining Uh pipeline permitting in general, getting around some environmental regulations, all of that stuff. So um, now Congress is coming back from their recess later this week. And... um, People are are kind of waiting to see what this what what this policy is actually going to be. Because the only thing folks had seen before was a leaked draft from Mansion's office, which right. had like at the top of it somewhere API draft. <laughs> so it's possible that it was like. Are you serious? Yeah. I mean, listen, it's possible that it was like. American Permitting Initiative draft, but API also stands. Have you Googled that for American Petroleum Institute? So that's not great. That's and not who great. They give Mansion
1: a shit ton of money, they so sure I'm feeling like do. it's
0: pretty likely. Yeah. that it was that one. Yes, yes. So yeah. that's another reason that people were really up in arm about because it, it's like, oh, this is literally written by the industry. What are you doing? Um, so yeah, Congress comes back right. from recess soon. We'll see what is actually being proposed here. And progressives have been saying, like, we are going to be very skeptical of, of anything that's, that's presented here because, you know, the IRA has now been signed into law. Like, they don't need to play ball with mansion on this permitting thing. Um, so, yeah. Quick question.
1: Uh, what does this permitting bill have to do, if anything, with the Gulf Shore um, or oh, the, the offshore leases and the Gulf nothing. Coast?
0: Yeah, nothing. This is more about pipeline permits. Although, I mean, okay, the, the thing that always comes up around leasing is that, like, you can have a lease— And it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll get to drill because you also need to get a permit. Um, And so a big thing that oil and gas companies have been asking for is more of a streamlined permitting process. The kind of flip side of that is that we need to make it easier for solar and wind operations to get permitted as well to improve distribution and allow those Uh, projects to scale and actually get to people's houses and businesses and stuff like that too so there's been a little bit of a like okay we'll make it easier for for solar and wind but you also have to make it easier for oil and gas um but mostly around Mm -hmm. pipeline permitting is the the big focus so um yeah
1: So if you wanted to prevent oil and gas leasing um, on the Gulf Coast Mm -hmm.
0: um,
1: under the IRA, like, how would you go about that? Like, where is that battle being fought?
0: Honestly, I'm not sure. I don't know. Like, there's the way that the, the law is set up right now it stipulates that you're only allowed to have offshore wind leasing if you have kind of commensurate offshore oil and gas leasing. So one thing would be don't hold the wind leases. Another could be that you push Biden to like um, come out with an executive order that bans offshore drilling again, which he had in place a while ago, like at the beginning of his presidency and then, Reversed himself on amid all of the Russia Ukraine stuff, so it's possible that he could put mm. a, put a moratorium on on offshore leasing. That's that's one thing mm-hmm. that could be done. Um, I'm not sure who's, and then you could fight um, each lease one at a time in court too. So that that would at least probably mm. slow them down in most cases, if. Um, if you're tied up in court around the permitting question, then you're not really able to like start drilling in the meantime. So, um, so yeah, those are some ways, but yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, um, I really, um, I really wish that that particular stipulation had not been included in the final IRA. Cause I think it's, it's quite bad. You know, Uh, Mm -hmm. we will see. Though, it doesn't seem good. Honestly, the thing that's weird, though, is that, like, if you look at what oil and gas companies are actually doing. So they talk a lot about how they want to drill more and they want to increase production and all this stuff. But they're not actually doing it. They're still sitting on um, a bunch of leases and not drilling because at the prices that oil is at currently, they've been able to make back a bunch of money that they lost during the pandemic. They're starting to pay their shareholders dividends the way that they used to and haven't been able to for a long time. And honestly, I don't I don't know that they're like I don't know that they're going to be like racing to 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 drill a bunch of new leases offshore. Um maybe, you know, I could I could definitely be wrong, but like just just from reading, you know, the most recent round of, of shareholder calls and stuff, they're not increasing production. Um, so,
1: hmm. you know. Meaning the prices are low and thus enabling
0: this, or the prices are no, high and thus enabling No, the price per them. barrel is very high. And so usually what you would see when the price per barrel is high is that they would be drilling more and also buying up a bunch of um assets from other companies to then drill more. And they're not doing either of those things. And they haven't been for like a year. So um, that's very unusual. And, yeah, you know, we'll see what happens. They are, however, tapping all these resources in other places that are much lower cost to drill. Like, you know, we talked about Guyana last time, Namibia, Mozambique, the Côte d'Ivoire, a lot of places in Africa um, where, you know, the, the environmental regulation is maybe not as um, stringent and, and labor is cheaper. And so they can make more money off of that oil because uh, their costs are lower. So that's the main place but that they're drilling so I right guess- now.
1: Yeah, I guess where this gets confusing for me is there was that big Guardian story a few months ago about all these carbon bombs Mm -hmm. that the fossil fuel industry wanted to explode, right? Like those really big projects that would release a shit ton of carbon Mm -hmm. that they're going about secretly. So that doesn't sound like an industry that's backing down from drilling to me. No, it doesn't. But
0: those carbon bombs are are mostly not in the U.S., because um, it's expensive to drill in the US. You can't like you can't produce a barrel of oil in the US for less than like 50 bucks a barrel about. And so now uh-huh. prices are $100 a barrel so they can make pretty good money. but um, the in the past decade or so, the average has been around 60. So if you're spending 50, that's not a great return for an oil company. They'd much rather, Go somewhere where it costs like twenty dollars a barrel to produce, and increase production there when when prices are high to to make a serious amount of money, hmm. versus doing it in the U.S. and then having to like um, back off as soon as the prices drop. Um, so so yeah, I, we haven't seen. Um, we haven't seen them starting to produce more um, in the U.S. Like I said, I think, I think the biggest reason um, for that is that they have all these other assets elsewhere that they're ramping up on. And so they can sit on stuff in the U.S. They can um, blame Biden for them not producing, even though it's their choice. That works well for them politically um they can use that to get a bunch of weakened regulation that will help them in the long term and then they can drill overseas and make a shitload of money so mm. that's that seems to be what they're doing right now um and we'll see we'll see if they take advantage of these um these things that they've been lobbying for um yeah yeah it's very uh yeah it's not good i mean the the um you know emissions are up oil production globally is up um we're going the wrong direction on on fossil fuels in general
1: (laughs) are we now way
0: (laughs) wrong direction yeah 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 um I will say what a frustrating world. It's so frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. There is like there there are some bright spots um at the state level on policies. So um we mentioned California a little bit ago. California just this past week passed like a giant raft of climate bills. Um there's a a lot of spending. Oh, yeah? So yeah, I mean it's it's wild. They um they approved fifty four billion dollars in uh, climate spending. so it's it's stuff that would like help to spur clean energy. And um in one case, actually they um there's a, a tax refund for people who don't have cars. So if you do not have a car, you get a thousand dollars from the state as a little like incentive for people to, to go car free, but also as a, an offset for low income people who are not going to benefit from some of the car focused things in the bill, Um, which is cool. Um, They also adopted a legally binding requirement to reduce greenhouse gases 40% by 2030, and 85% by 2040, and net zero by 2045. They have a non-binding goal of 109% net reduction by 2045. So this is like, you know, they are legally required to get to net zero, and there's a whole bunch of incentives to get to actually, like, negative emissions, um, Mm -hmm. which is cool. This does include some carbon capture, but they've stipulated that it cannot be carbon capture that's connected to enhanced oil recovery, which is fantastic because that's the primary use of carbon capture right now is to get more oil out of the ground, which is not a climate solution, Um, (laughs) you know? (laughs) <laughs> feels like a climate problem. It's a problem if I'm being real. It's a problem. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, that's all that's all really good. They also included like um, housing bills in this climate package. so incentives for denser housing. They lifted the requirement. There, there's been a requirement forever in California that if you develop a new um, residential or commercial building, you have to include parking. They got rid of that, which is great. Um, Hmm. and they also passed setback laws. This is something that environmental justice folks have been trying to get passed in California for decades, um, and it passed. So oil and gas wells have to be at least 3,200 feet away from homes, schools, and hospitals. Um, I don't think people know this oh, wow. necessarily, but California is actually a big oil and gas state, and a lot of the oil and gas in California is in residential neighborhoods. It's very bizarre if you drive mm-hmm. around Southern California, like L.A. County area, you will absolutely see people who have oil wells, like, right outside their backyard. Um or right outside their kid's school, <laughs> you know? So this is is obviously... Isn't Chevron based in California? Yes, they're based in Richmond. Yeah, they sure are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, of course, the industry fought against, especially the setback rules, really, really hard, uh, but they lost, which is, is a little tiny bit of good news on the climate front. They also... Um, they also passed a law banning gas cars by the year 2035, which is a pretty big deal. Um, we'll see, you know, if that gets hauled into court right away. I, I'm guessing that it will. But, um, but you know, I do think it sends a big message about, you know, mm-hmm. where the state's headed. A lot of people um, were speculating that this is all being pushed by... Governor Newsom because he's um, toying with a presidential run, uh, so I don't know. We'll see. That guy has a lot of skeletons in his closet, oh boy. but apparently, but that's like no longer, you know, a problem for presidential runs.
1: <laughs> so sometimes it can be a boon, as we have seen. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Just thinking about the next presidential election like sent <sighs> me into hives.
0: I know. I know. So. Um, so you know, I mean, of course, as with every piece of policy, it's not perfect. And I know that um California is very, very good at making a lot of really big promises and throwing budget behind things and then not actually like following through on them. So we'll see we'll see what happens on the ground. But um yeah. you know, it's a pretty big chunk of money and like some actual regulation alongside the spending too, unlike what we're seeing at the federal level, which is good. Americans spend an average of 90% of their time indoors, which is bad news because according to the EPA, indoor air could be two to five times more polluted than outdoor air. In some cases, it could be 100 times more polluted. Data shows that air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths around the world. I have a strange little problem in my neck of the woods, and that is that everybody likes to burn their garden trash and other trash too. Lots of trash burning going on in my neighborhood. Not great. Air Doctor has really, really helped. I just fire it up on days when I can tell everybody's lighting their trash fires and it keeps the household air clean air doctor is the air purifier that has captured the attention of established media outlets like cnn money abc and more air doctor filters out dangerous contaminants and allergens like pollen pet dander dust mites and mold so your lungs don't have to air doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee so if you don't love it just send it back for a refund minus shipping Head to airdoctorpro.com and use the promo code DRILLED to get up to 39% off or up to $300 off, depending on the model. Lock this special offer in by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use the promo code DRILLED. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%. Four zero, 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's earthbreez dot slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Earthbreeze.com slash drilled.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, look at you coming
0: through with good news. Yeah. I'm so proud of there you. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Again, don't forget to send us your questions for scientist Dr. Kate Marvel. We're going to have an Ask the Scientist episode coming up soon. And we're going to be talking about labor unions and climate after this quick break.
1: is brought to you by Bite. Um, so we've talked before about the little pellets of toothpaste that you get from um, Bite. They're these little, like, look like little breath mints and you bite on them and you make the toothpaste in your mouth. But also, I just, before we get into this ad, I want to talk a little bit about some of their other products because they have a lot of stuff. They have mad shit. They got floss. They have little mouthwash things that you can also Ooh. make the mouthwash in your mouth. And they have deodorant, which I will tell you, actually works. <laughs> <laughs> oh. in a new orleans
0: summer so that's some
1: good wow. shit wow um, wow
0: that's amazing <laughs> i love yeah. i like all the bite stuff i have to say i'm a fan and i like their packaging too it's very cute very sustainable yes
1: and so good and yes. they make their own toothbrush too the toothbrush is really cute Adorable. it's made out of bamboo oh ah, i know so good but back to the toothpaste did yeah. you know that you swallow five to seven percent of your toothpaste every single time you brush your teeth amy
0: that is gross
1: that's an entire blob of toothpaste every seven days. Bros. most commercial toothpaste. I know you should be ashamed of yourself. Most commercial toothpaste are filled with harsh chemicals, artificial flavors, and preservatives. Not stuff you'd want to be putting in your mouth, let alone eating. Mm-hmm. That's why Bite makes dry toothpaste tablets made with clean ingredients that are sulfate-free, palm oil-free, and glycerin-free. And I might add,
0: delicious. They are delicious. They're like little mints. Was I that love weird? them. <laughs> Yeah. No, it's not weird. They're great. I actually love those things. I think they're very tasty, and I'm I'm an unapologetic fan outside of the ad, which we appreciate, but I also genuinely like your product. Yeah, yeah. She doesn't add that in for no
1: reason. Bite toothbrush bits are so convenient, you can just pop a bit in your mouth, chew it up, and start brushing it. It will turn to paste just like you're used to, but with no plastic tube or messy paste. Um, They also come in refillable glass jars, and they send refills in compostable packages. So they're better for our bodies and our earth. No more plastic toothpaste tubes. Bite makes plastic-free alternatives for everything in your bathroom sink, from toothpaste, mouthwash, toothbrushes, and deodorant, told you, so you can cut out the harsh chemicals and plastic waste without compromise. Bite's sleek glass bottles and jars look amazing on your vanity and elevate your shelfy game. No hiding gooey plastic tubes here. Bite is offering our listeners 20% off your first order. Go to trybite.com slash hottake or use the code hottake to check out and claim this deal. That's T-R-Y-B-I-T-E dot com slash hottake.
0: Hot Take is brought to you by Real Paper. All right. Now it's time for my favorite product, the toilet paper. Another thing that's my favorite, trees. They're uh, pretty great. They're cool. They provide shade, they make oxygen, they prevent erosion, uh-huh. they suck up a lot of carbon, a lot more than a lot of these carbon capture projects are doing. They also provide homes for animals. So to turn something that awesome into poopy paper. It's ridiculous. It's kind of it crazy. It's kind of crazy.
1: Just a, another shout out to trees. Crazy. There's also wetlands, you know? You don't want to be pulling those right. up either. They, they protect right. you in the
0: event of a hurricane, which I like. I That's appreciate right. that. I like that. Yeah. like that very much. Yes. These are all reasons why I love Real Paper. Real makes a sustainable toilet paper that uses 100% bamboo, the great thing about bamboo is that it's fast-growing grass. I actually had a gardener in Costa Rica describe it to me as a weed recently. <laughs> that's how <laughs> that's how fast it grows. Yeah. He was like, Ugh. if you cut this, it grows back like right away. You have to pull it out. It's a weed. So that's how quickly bamboo, you know, regenerates itself. And you can sort of harvest the bamboo without actually killing the plant. So it's very, very renewable. On top of the ecological benefit of using bamboo, Real Paper's packaging is also plastic-free and compostable. Real Paper is available in easy, hassle-free subscriptions or for one-time purchases on their website. All orders are conveniently delivered to your door with free shipping in 100% recyclable, plastic-free packaging. If you head to realpaper.com hot and sign up for a subscription using our code hot at checkout, you'll automatically get 30% off your first order and free shipping. That's R-E-E-L-P-A-P-E-R dot com slash hot or enter the promo code HOT to get 30% off your first order plus free shipping. So let's stop flushing our forests and try Reel's tree-free paper. Reel is paper for the planet.
1: All right, so... Um, Since we're talking on Labor Day, I feel like it's only right to connect the dots on labor and climate. Um, And also to note that today is not really the Workers' Rights Day. That would be May Day, May 1st. Um, And Labor Day is a day that the government just kind of made up uh, (laughs) to come up with like a a bone to throw to people. I mean, I appreciate
0: the bone. I'll take the bone. But really, it's May Day. That's right. Right? That's right. Yes. Yes. Yeah, May Day is the International Workers' Day. Damn it.
1: I was just going to say, I I feel like you probably know all the history there is around labor and fossil fuels. And I feel like those are two things that people often think of in tension
0: with one another. Yes,
1: yes. Tell us the truth, Amy. It's
0: such an interesting history because the first big opposition, like organized opposition to fossil fuel companies was labor unions. Um, so you know, if you think right, to, <laughs> and coal mines, and right? Coal mines, yeah. Like the very some of the very first unions were at coal mines. Some of the very first strikes in this country were coal mine workers against companies like Standard Oil, for example, or the Rockefellers' other mining venture. Um, so you know, there there was this very um, organized kind of movement against the sorts of things that uh, fossil fuel companies were doing. And mostly this was around working conditions, especially like the the requirement that workers live in company towns and be wholly dependent on the company for kind of everything in their lives. Um, but you had, you know, not just uh, oil and coal, but also, you know, Henry Ford, very <laughs> vehemently anti-union. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> You know? Yeah. Uh, then you have like the long history <laughs> yeah. of like auto workers unionizing and pushing for for better working conditions and whatnot too. So there's actually like a, pr- oh, a pretty long history yeah. of it, right? But then in the '70s and '80s, uh, the oil companies really start to wise up, and they are like, "Oh, yeah, the unions could be a very useful ally to us." Um, all we have to do is promise mm-hmm. jobs and high wages, and they will keep the the left from passing environmental policy. And so they really successfully framed um, environmental policy as being anti labor. So uh, that yeah. that really happened, like in the wake of you know, Silent Spring and the first Earth Day and all of these things, uh, a lot of of industries kind of came together and, and successfully forged partnerships with unions to um, to kind of frame the issue of, of any kind of environmental policy as being like anti-worker, um, which is so interesting because yeah. it's like, I, who's living in most of, like, The workers are often living in the community closest to the mine or the refinery or whatever. So even from a, like, you know, near-term pollution standpoint, like, they're bearing the brunt, you know. Um, Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Right. And this is an industry that, like, you know, if we're
1: talking about before the 70s is using Convict leasing right. stuff—and I, I think still uses prison labor today. So, oh, like, yeah. please spare me that. Oh yeah. Um, but when you were listing out the labor unions in the you know early 1900s, that also made me think of the very famous labor novel, *The Jungle*, which was yes. about meatpacking exactly. plants in in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And meatpacking is another contribution to climate change. Yeah, so,
0: that's right. Yeah. Upton Sinclair was like one of—I mean, that was like one of the first books that really highlighted working conditions. I mean, like, this Uh is, it's, it's an interesting thing, because in this country, in the very first kind of wave of industrialization, it was sort of like, oh, these amazing captains of industry building this country and whatever, you know? And then very quickly, people started to be like, uh... Like it's it's average people who are doing yeah. the work of building this country, and that work fucking sucks. So you know, um, yeah. So yeah, you, you start to yeah. see to see that, and then you start to see pr- very quickly, um, you know, the emergence of, of the PR industry and lobbying um, as a reaction to regulations being put on businesses. So you, I don't know, you kind of see this all happening um, throughout. Throughout the 1900s and then, yeah, in the, in the seventies, as global warming starts to become, um, an issue and as more and more environmental policy is getting passed, the fossil fuel industry did a a really phenomenal job of making friends with unions (laughs) and, and like Mm -hmm. that pretty, they were, unions were like a really big part of climate obstruction for a really long time, um, at the state level, mm-hmm. in particular, so they would show up and they would they would you know um, lean on politicians to to block climate policy because it was it was painted as something that was going to cost jobs um, you know it was going mm-hmm. to it was going to result in the canceling of construction projects and it would cost jobs and it would put people out of work and um, you know the industry. Was very profitable for a very long time and I think did a smart thing, which is pay high wages, even in the coal mines. Right. There was a period of time where coal miners made really, really good money um, and and the jobs that yeah. were on offer, you know, for those same people outside of that industry paid half as much. So, um, so, you know. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Wh- One of the things I I learned this weekend, I went to an event at the Whitney Plantation um, about climate and race. And one of the things I learned was that a lot of the land that the fossil fuel industry bought up, especially in Cancer Alley, they brought it up in the 60s and 70s, -hmm. when those plots of land were active plantations. Yes. Um, and right. so it wasn't like they had to remove a whole lot of people. Well, they did remove a lot of people, but they didn't have to like buy a whole lot of people out. They could just buy the plantation, right. give the money all to the plantation owner. And the folks who are working there and living there are like sharecroppers. They don't own anything. It doesn't take anything to move them. Mm-hmm. But also like they're replacing this, you know, sharecropping system with fossil fuel jobs that— Well, sharecropping jobs, you could kind of argue they didn't really pay, (laughs) that they weren't really jobs. It's more like indentured labor. Um, And then they're replacing it with a job that actually pays you a wage. And, like, of course people are going to be all over that in the beginning. Right. Right. um, And welcome that sort of opportunity
0: in the beginning. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. 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 So then, you know, you can understand why um, you you would often see unions showing up, um, you know, next to— oil and gas guys, uh, on, on various policy debates and whatnot. Um, so just like it's, it's, it's useful context to have as we look at what's happening today, which is that, you know, organized labor is having a major comeback. There has been an absolute explosion in, um, the unionizing of workplaces across multiple industries. So the, the, um, the National Labor Relations Board which governs most private sector employees they reported that union election filings so this is like the workers filing to have an election where they vote about whether to unionize those filings increased by 58% have in the first 3 quarters of 2022 which is crazy to me that's a huge spike um, and you yeah. know we've seen it like we've seen yeah. the Amazon workers unionizing and Starbucks and nurses and airline workers and all of that so it, it's kind of led some people I feel to like <laughs> yeah
1: Yeah. I feel like the pandemic has had something to do with that and all of this, Uh, like, you know, fuck this job. (laughs) Like, this isn't worth my sanity sort of thing. And like the whole essential workers thing has had a lot Mm -hmm. to do with it, too. Remember when oil and gas workers were essential workers and therefore fossil fuels had to keep flowing?
0: Yeah. Yes. And actually, you know, oil and gas companies treated their workers terribly during COVID. They, they got yes. essential worker status for them so that they could keep working. But then they were often working in very dangerous conditions like, you know, in housing situations where they were in very close quarters or offshore where they're in very close quarters. Mm-hmm. They had the highest COVID rate of any industry which they tried to keep quiet oh, wow. for a long time. They actually tried to hide those numbers for a while. Yeah. And then when the COVID relief packages were being um, negotiated in the federal government, those fuckers lobbied to get a liability loophole in there that would block their employees from suing them like with workman's comp charges. Um because oh, wow. they had absolutely put them at risk in a really major way. So, yeah. you know, we talked about this with with Sarah Sneath on our, our episode about fossil fuel jobs and what they really looked like today. Because on top of the fact that, you know, they are not necessarily paying, like the, they still pay okay wages, but they're not like so much more than other jobs anymore. And then there's this real lack of stability. The conditions aren't great. Um, there's no real permanence to it as we saw during COVID actually like a bunch of people got laid off as well. Um, and you know, they're really leaning into automation as a way to get rid of jobs. Um, because Mm -hmm. people are expensive and machines aren't, aren't as expensive, (laughs) you know? So, so anyway, all of that's happening. So you're like, wow, if anyone, needs needs to like push back against the big bosses. it's it's the oil and gas guys. and you're starting to see like a little bit of that trickling up. I think some I think a lot of unions are still like worried about whether clean energy is established enough to provide those good paying jobs and you know benefits and and all of that stuff. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's still that like tension between, you know. Like the mm-hmm. necessary climate policy and whether it will take away jobs.
1: Yeah. And the other thing I want to remind folks of from the Sarah uh, episode is, you know, she was talking about getting to know these folks who work in the oil industry, and some of them are like environmentalists. Oh, yeah. Um, they are not climate change deniers. No. Um, they're not these types of folks who, like, they don't, they, they know that what they're doing is harmful to the planet, and they hate that. Mm-hmm. Um, they love animals. They love nature. So, like, it would make sense to me that we would see a lot more of them organizing against their employers very, very soon. Yeah. Um, and it also kind of reminds me of a couple of years ago, I think it was 2020, when a bunch of folks quit from Shell because they yes. realized that the company was not was ever going to put its money where its mouth was. Yes. and it was just, Yeah, and it was just greenwashing.
0: Yes. Yeah. You're seeing it actually yeah. in the, the PR and advertising space, too, where um, employees in those mm-hmm. realms are like, I'm not going to do this anymore, you know. Um, so that's, it's super interesting. And then also, um, I think it's worth pointing out that the Inflation Reduction Act had a bunch of safeguards for for labor in it. Um, they had a, a lot of, of stuff in there around paying, um, very, like, a, a good wage to clean energy workers and um, developers of those projects get various financial incentives to pay good wages and also to provide training and benefits and, you know, basically like a lot of incentives to make sure that those jobs are as good or better than oil and gas jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, That's happening at the state level, too. There's been a few states that have passed policy that would ensure... Um, you know, good wages and good conditions for, for clean energy workers so that there's some kind of, like, security in the transition. Because I think a lot of folks felt like, well, you know, I might have to, like, retrain, and then if I do, what if this job goes away? Or what if it starts to pay half as much next year or whatever? You know, um, So, mm-hmm.
1: so, yeah, I think
0: as you start to see more of that, but, you know, the industry is very desperate to recruit talent, so they're they're trying to to make those jobs look as yes. good as possible. Too, um, yeah, they have like yeah. a major major worker yeah. shortage in the fossil fuel industry. Um, so, mm. yeah, well. That
1: might explain why. Uh, I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts, Reveal, mm-hmm. um, and they are re-airing their, their series on American rehab, which included the fact that Shell and Exxon have used unpaid labor from drug rehab centers. Oh um, so, I well, I guess Shell and Exxon would have played the re- paid the rehab center, yeah. but the people who actually perform the work don't get paid. Um, and oh. as we've talked about plenty of times, these are dangerous jobs, and these folks are doing them with no training, no training whatsoever, let alone compensation. Um, and so, you know, just like imagine that these are folks who are fighting off major addictions, which is why they go to these rehab centers, which don't really help them. And that's a whole other story, and you should go listen to it because shit is crazy. It's so um, good. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. But it was like crazy to be listening to that and here comes Shell and Exxon. Like these folks, the worst people are always the same people. Always.
0: It's just any terrible thing you're you're finding out about, they're they're there somewhere. Um Yeah. yeah. Right? Like, your
1: cereal got soggy? I guarantee the oil industry has something to do with (laughs) it.
0: Probably, yes. It's true. (laughs) It's true. Um, I do feel like we're also starting to, like, see progressive candidates at least just be better about talking about um, this issue, I, I feel like for a long time the climate movement was, like, just, like, weird and awkward up on the labor stuff in general. Like, I would always hear people complaining. Oh, yeah, they totally. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I would hear people complaining They let the about fossil about fuel industry own jobs. Oh, 100%. 100%. Yes. Yes. I would hear people complain about the how the unions were always, like, showing up to block climate policy, you know, and, like, and I don't know. I was yeah. I was like, okay, but like, what are you doing to stop Why? that? Like it's not, I don't know. I'm just like, I just feel like if your competition for nice guy is Exxon and you're losing, you're just not trying. <laughs> you know?
1: Like, right. like <laughs> well, honestly, I think the climate movement has just been really, really bad at taking. Like, just always accepting the fossil fuel industry's narrative yeah. and reacting to that as opposed to being like calling bullshit and reframing it. That's right. Yeah. And like calling out them out as liars. Like, it has been only like a couple of years that the the biggest voices in the climate movement have been calling out the fossil fuel industry and fossil fuel companies directly. That's mm-hmm. true. That's true. It's, just, That's like, true. <laughs> it's weird.
0: Yeah. I, it's weird that that had to shift. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I also I also think that, like, you know, swinging the other way, and as you have put it before, like, making climate into, like, some big giant jobs fair is, like, is not helpful either. <laughs> you know? It's like, yeah. you know, it's a jobs generator, don't worry, is, like, not, I don't know, not the greatest messaging. But I do feel like, you know, um, I mean, this is— Honestly, I feel like once again, it's the, like the Green New Deal actually provided good messaging for the climate movement around jobs and and labor unions. It was like we we have to insert a just transition for workers, and like, what does that look like? Training, mm-hmm. wages, you know, all of this stuff. And at the time, a lot of people in the climate movement were like, ah, it's too much. <laughs> You know, but, but like, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's exactly what's needed. So, um, so yeah, we'll, we'll see, we'll see where oil workers end up as, as the labor movement kind of continues to pick up speed. Um, But yeah. 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 We're getting there. We're getting there. We're getting there slowly, but surely.
1: (sighs) All right, so last week we talked a bit about the water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi, um, which is still very much a crisis. Mm -hmm. Um, So just to recap, um, the city of Jackson, Mississippi, with a population of 180,000 people, 82 percent of which is Black, um, lost running water after the Pearl River flooded last Sunday into last Monday. Um, as of today, most of the city has water pressure again, but it's still under a boil water notice. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to take at least a billion dollars to get Jackson's water infrastructure in shape again. Um, and if you want to help, please donate to the Mississippi Rapid Response Coalition, the link is in the show notes. Um, They are trying to uh, work toward a long-term solution because we can get the water flowing again, but the crisis is much, much deeper than that, Mm -hmm. which we'll talk about. So I saw in a few places people getting the story wrong and saying that the city lost clean water last week. And <laughs> that's not exactly what happened. They lost running water. They mm-hmm. had not had potable water, meaning water that didn't have a boil water notice, since last July. As far as clean drinking water, bitch, please, that's been a long ass time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I, I want to talk a little bit about what happens when you don't have running water, um, because then the consequences are a lot more deadly. Like we're talking here about no water coming out of the tap at all that you could even put into a water filter to make drinking water. That's no water to shower with, no water to wash dishes with, no water to wash your hands with. Mind you, we are in a pandemic. We're we are we're talking about no water to flush a toilet with. Do you know what source of diseases can run rampant in that sort of scenario? Um, and shit gets real gross real fast. Yeah. And while this is happening, it's blazing hot outside mm-hmm. because climate change didn't take a break. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So... Um, To illustrate more of what this looks like on the ground, I want to take a look at dialysis. Um, And this is a process for people who have kidney failure or kidney disease. It's kind of like a process that acts as an artificial kidney to to flush out your body. And it requires a ton of clean water, not just potable water, not just running water, clean water, which, as I said, Jackson's a long way from that. Mm -hmm. So most of the dialysis clinics in Jackson had to have trucks hooked up to make sure that they could take care of their patients. But as you can imagine, that's you know, kind of a nerve-wracking
0: short-term solution, Yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, my God.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so, like, there are patients who do their own dialysis treatment at home, but they can't do that if they don't have clean water. Right. Um, and the rate of Kidney disease in Jackson is 26% higher than the national average. And if we go beyond Jackson, there are 9,000 Mississippians living with end-stage kidney failure. And the state has the highest death rate from end-stage kidney disease in the country. And can you guess why? Jesus.
0: That's awful. I Take mean, a wild
1: guess why Mississippi has such, kidney, such high rates
0: of kidney disease. Well, because they don't have access to clean water. I mean—
1: All over the fucking state. That's ridiculous. On a regular fucking basis. Yeah. The wide, the water crisis in Mississippi is widespread. It's all over the state. I am from a town that has been under a boil water notice since I was a small child. Um, it's not unusual to turn on the tap in the morning and the water has a smell. The water has a color. Sometimes it should be having a texture. Like it's just straight Ugh. up mud coming out of the tap. I don't think I have ever had clean drinking water in in you know Mississippi, what's crazy? Ever. About like that I remember moving. Is yeah. like uh,
0: mm-hmm. when you go to different countries as an American, people the for almost well, especially in Latin America, people are like, "Don't drink the water! Don't drink the water there! It's not clean!" Yep. You know, but like yep. we have entire states in this country that don't have clean water. That's just like unconscionable. Come on. Mm
1: -hmm. I mean, it's unconscionable that it's acceptable anywhere. Right. Like So when you do talk to people about the water crisis in Mississippi or in Texas or in Louisiana or in Alabama, um, people will immediately be like in this country as though that's acceptable anywhere. You know what I mean? Like, you know that there's (laughs) shitty water somewhere, but not here. That's yeah. not acceptable here. Like, that drives me crazy, too. Yes. Um, yes. But as as much as my, my heart is with Jackson right now, I'm troubled by this narrative that tends to build up on the left about problems like this being an urban problem, when mm-hmm. the exact same thing happens in rural communities all the time. Oh, yeah. But those communities are too small to generate this type of attention and sympathy. And it kind of feels like that same ignorance in which urban becomes a euphemism for Black, Mm -hmm. and it erases the existence of rural Black folks. But also, this kind of disinvestment that leads to, like, shitty water infrastructure happens to rural communities of all colors. And Mississippi is largely about Black people, but, like, it, it happens to white communities, too. Like, there are communities in this country where they don't have indoor plumbing. Oh, Yeah those do tend to be like all black towns and towns that have been all black since like slavery times. Yeah. Um, But, You know, like, this water infrastructure problem in the U.S., like, people associate it with places like Flint, and now they'll associate it with Jackson. But it really is a country problem. It's a rural problem. Mm -hmm. And I worry about the compassion fatigue in this country that's like, if it's a city, we can care. But if it's out in the country, well, that's what you get for living out in the country.
0: Yes, I I saw someone posting on Twitter recently, like— well, people who live in those places, meaning rural places, should just move. <laughs> it's like, wow, okay, um, but yeah. I mean, I also, I also want to point out that like it's often rural communities whose water is contaminated by oil and gas operations all the time. Mm, talk about that. All of like the the fracking yep. communities where you know you saw these videos for a while, maybe like a decade ago, where people could light their water on fire because there was gas in it. Those were all rural communities in yep. Pennsylvania, Colorado, Texas, all over. So it's it's pretty widespread. Like, I actually think – I wonder, honestly, like if we're at the point where it's more rare to have clean water than it is to have <laughs> dirty water at this point because there's it's so – Prevalent. And we're just not spending yeah. any money to repair that infrastructure. And those are, like, fucking basics, man. Like, water, food, yep. shelter. These are yep. pretty basic things that you're yep. supposed to, like, honestly, that you're supposed to get as, like, a member of a society, right? It's That's the deal. It's, like, yep. I'm living in society. I pay a certain amount to the government, and I also, like, you know, <laughs> expect a certain amount from them and and— these are the basic things that that are supposed to to come. Um, that's yeah, yeah. You can't
1: live without that. No, you can't. You can't live without water. No. Yeah. No. So yeah, my my hope, and it's a young, it's a long shot, is that when the cameras leave Jackson, they spend some time out in the rural communities that are suffering in silence. Um, but another problem I've had with the coverage has been about the media's inability to hold space for both climate change and environmental racism at the same time. Yes. I <laughs> so, hate how like, they act well, like those
0: are mutually exclusive. Like, they're very much right on top of yeah. each other. Yes. Yes.
1: Yeah. So— While it's true that the water system in Jackson was bound to fail after so many decades of disinvestment, but the floods that led to this particular breakdown and the freeze that caused it to break down in 2021, that was climate change. And we need to be able to talk about that, too. So it bothers me that environmental racism, which we should definitely be talking about, too, becomes the shiny thing that distracts from climate change, which is the ultimate form of environmental racism. Yes,
0: Yes. Like, yes. Yes. Yeah. They that's right. can't cancel each other out. Right. They oh. they intersect and exacerbate each other. Um, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I,
1: I kind of feel like the environmental racism becomes easier to talk about because you can wind up oftentimes you can create a narrative where you can blame the environmental racism on one person, Mm -hmm. right? So right now that person is Governor Tate Reeves, (laughs) which, yeah. yeah. So like, don't get me wrong, Tate Reeves sucks, but Mm -hmm. so did Haley Barber before him, but also so does ExxonMobil and BP and all these people that have like created climate change. You know what I mean? Like, so it doesn't, one shitty person shouldn't cover for other shitty people.
0: That's right. We we got
1: to have enough hate to go around. We can hate on all these people. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely.
1: I don't know. So last thing is I, I was reading through Evlo Evlando Cooper's latest um, recent guest on the show um, about the water crisis. And he was noting that most cable news segments completely failed to connect the dots on this as an environmental justice story. Hmm. Period. Period. At um, all. So, right. on, That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, fantastic. This is a direct quote. On cable, CNN let total overall coverage, airing two hours and thirty-eight minutes, compared to MSNBC's one hour and twenty-five minutes. MSNBC aired the most individual environmental justice segments, with eight accounting for twenty-nine minutes of coverage, but CNN's five segments included discussion of environmental justice, accounting for thirty-four minutes. Fox <laughs> aired a paltry six minutes of coverage about the Jackson water crisis and did not air any segments mentioning environmental justice. You know, I expected shot, a little bit girl. more from. Fox News. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> I'm oh. surprised. I expected more. Really? I thought
0: Tucker was going
1: to be all over this. I thought it, uh, no. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, absolutely
0: not. I wonder if. Uh, well, I'm surprised they didn't find some way to spin it. That's that's the main thing. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I feel like it's. They're probably working on it in some mm-hmm, you know nefarious mm-hmm.
0: little conference room. See, so this is what you're going to get the story, under climate policy. Is just, is just Basically, everyone's going to be living in Jackson. Um,
1: <laughs> I expect to it see just, that. I don't know how they're going to spin that story, but they will. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So another quote from his story was that a strong environmental justice story must do much more than provide brief demographic mentions. The best segments provide important context about how and why the residents of Jackson are dealing with a failed water system. And that got me to thinking about— um, something that we talked about in our episode with David Wallace-Wells. Mm-hmm. So remember how people were debating whether or not we should highlight that climate change hurts Black and brown people worse because then it might make people check out uh, check out the way that they did when they found out that COVID
0: affects Black and brown people the most.
1: Mm-hmm. So I was like...
0: And the answer is I don't know. no, what you it's is evidence that you need to yeah. fucking tackle white supremacy. I, I really hate this framing yeah. in general that like, oh you know, people feel uncomfortable when you talk about race, so let's just not talk about it. Or people feel uncomfortable when you talk about environmental justice, so let's just sidestep that. Like, no, that's the entire reason that you do need to talk about it. I feel like the same thing came up in, yeah. the, in the conversations around the Inflation Reduction Act, where it was, like, basically, like, hey, environmental justice people, just pipe down and get on board, Um Like, you're giving the fossil fuel industry uh, fuel to to come after the the climate movement with or whatever. And it's like, no, it's, you know, like, no, like, the climate movement needs to fix its white supremacy problem so that it's no longer a weakness that can be exploited. (laughs) You know, Um, I just.
1: Also, you. Yeah. You literally can't give the fossil fuel industry fuel. It's in the name. That's right. That's right. They, they will always find the fuel.
0: Also, like we've been, we like we've been avoiding talking about um, systemic racism and white supremacy in this country for how long? And like, how well has that gone? Not very. I I, I think that people are like so freaked out by the like anti CRT backlash that like you're seeing it bubble up in all of these other ways. But I just I think that's such a fucking weak response. Like, ooh. These people are coming after it, so we should just cave and, like, you know, talk about something else instead, instead of, oh, that means that, like, maybe we're actually finally going to tackle this problem, which needs to happen. You know, (laughs) like, it just, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And it also proves, you know, a lot of the times climate folks will be like, we'll do climate action at the city and state level, which we definitely should do. But that's not a, a, an ending solution for this. Yeah. Right. Like that's like trying to end segregation at the state level. That's you right. needed federal policy to get involved, to bring segregation down right. because you can like plenty of money has gone to Mississippi to fix the water infrastructure or just to fix infrastructure in general. Mm-hmm. But if you have the Republican power structure that will literally turn that money around, right? Like, mm-hmm. there is all this money given to extend unemployment benefits. And Mississippi's governor famously was like, you know what, we're good. <laughs> like, literally damning his state to uh, to poverty.
0: Yeah, just to make you know, it, like, like, just to win political points with Tucker Carlson.
1: Ugh. right. Which I I guess what I'm saying is, like, we need both state and federal action. And it is never a good place to be where we're saying, like, you know— it's no problem not to have federal action because we'll just do it at the state level because mm-hmm. what you wind up creating is eco-apartheid.
0: That's right. That's it's, in fact, you're seeing this—actually, this the, the stuff we talked about with California contrasted with what we're seeing in Mississippi is a perfect example. In the wake of the yeah. IRA, people were like, but it's okay. The states can make up the difference, right? Well, California is trying to do that, but then you have— you know mississippi is struggling to get clean water that's not that's not something that should be happening in in a country that claims to you know care about equality and democracy and all of those things you know you can't i don't know yeah you're right or you care
1: about climate right yes yeah it does
0: cuz like if ego california politics. enacts
1: yeah but also like we all share the same atmosphere. So if Texas yes, is fucking it up, true. California can't alone patch it up. That's right. Like, that doesn't
0: make sense. I remember I did this story. You know, that's like what like, they call hustling backwards. Totally, totally. I. It reminds me of, um. I did this story years ago, like a really long time ago. It was just a teeny tiny story about um. the city of Austin was trying to implement really strict air pollution regulations. And they were having all of these issues because— like, they only control their own airspace, right? And there was shit, like, blowing into their airspace from other places. And they were trying to figure out, like, if they could find people that were outside of their city limits for the impact that they were having on air quality. And I was like, this is why you can't do it like this. Like, we, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yeah. like, right now, yeah. you know, um, again, on the, just the the air pollution front, like, um, you know, there's all, always those, like, gee whiz stories when the wind picks up and there's, like, a fire in California and New York is getting the smoke from it. You know, um, like, that's what happens with air and wind, guys. There's no borders. And, <laughs> you know. Yep. <laughs> and climate's the same. That's how there's it There's barely works. borders with water. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah.
1: I mean, I it also reminds me of um, you know, the state of Louisiana is trying to deny New Orleans um funds to prevent flooding because the state has refused to um enforce the or not the state. The city has refused to enforce the abortion ban oh, in the state. Oh,
0: so as punishment just, they're like God, that's so fucked up. Yeah. When you consider that, like, the, the the basis of being anti-abortion is supposedly being pro-life, but then you're going to deny people help in a fucking disaster. Um, right.
1: Uh, or to prevent a disaster to yeah. the economic engine of not just the state, but kind of the region, too. Yeah. You know, like, if New Orleans yeah. drowns, you go bankrupt. So, like, it's really you that spiteful.
0: Yes.
1: You that spiteful. You on undra- Wow.
0: Yeah. Wow.
1: And then people on the left will say that, like, these things don't have nothing to do to, with each other, right? Like, you were just saying about labor and climate. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we can't connect the dots because then we'll just have a single colored page. I don't know. Yeah. I, don't know I mean, I understand
0: is. that, like, you know, connecting the dots means that, like, we actually have to solve all of the problems or more, you know, we actually have to solve the root of all of the problems, which is, you know, white supremacy, yeah. capitalism, patriarchy. Like we actually have to, to deal with these long Standing entrenched, systemic issues underpinning all of this stuff. That's what connecting the dots shows you, right? So I understand why that freaks people out. Because it's a lot, (laughs) you know? (laughs) But but that doesn't change that that's, like, what's needed, you know? I'm sorry. It's a lot of work. Get on board.
1: There's not shortcuts. No. If we learn anything from reconstruction, it should be that there are no shortcuts. That's right. That's right. So— Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like that's a great place to
0: leave it. It is. Nice and angry. No shortcuts, bitches. Yeah? Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) That's it for this week, and we'll see you next time.
1: Hot Take is a Crooked Media production.
0: It's produced by Ray Pang and mixed and edited by Jules Bradley. Our music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. And Molly Cotacara is our consulting producer. And our executive producers are Mary Anais Hegler, Michael Martinez, and me, Amy Westervelt.
1: Special thanks to Sandy Gerard, Ari Schwartz, Kyle Seglin, and Charlotte Landis for production support and to Amelia Montooth for digital support.
0: You can follow the show on Twitter at RealHotTake, sign up for our newsletter at hottakepod.com and subscribe to Crooked Media's video channel at youtube.com slash crookedmedia.